This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome, folks. Here we are one more time at Core Brain Journal. We're so pleased to have Dr. Bill Walsh back. Uh, Dr. Walsh was with us on episode 025. So if you're interested in what's going on with Dr. Walsh's history, which is really intriguing, go back there because we're not going to spend the time this uh, meeting today, this interview today, to talk about his history and who he is as a person. We'll talk a little bit introduction in case this is the only time you've heard from him. But then we drive you back to uh, episode 025. Bill, welcome. We're really pleased to have you with us again. Well, glad to be with you again. So our mission, listeners, is to ask Dr. Walsh to take it. We started with methylation. That's the 025. And that's an essential understanding that has to do with uh, really neurotransmitter activity from the point of view of uh, uptake and the activity of the neurotransmitters in the synapse itself. And today we're going to hit copper and cryptopyrrole. And one of the reasons we really want to hit crypt, uh, copper and cryptopyrrole is because they're so intriguing. And in truth, if you think people don't know much about methylation, well, I think we're all going to kind of jump off the cliff with copper and cryptopyrrole because it's so uh, frequently not recognized, not understood, and really n not in a treatment plan. So. So with that, let me just introduce those of you who are new a little bit. Dr. Walsh is the president of the nonprofit Walsh Research Institute near Chicago, and he directs doctor training programs in the U.S., Australia, and Norway. And we're going to have a link in the show notes for the Walsh Research Institute because he's going to have a training coming up again in October. During his 30 years as a research scientist and engineer, and remember this, Dr. Walsh started as a nuclear engineer at Argonne National Laboratory in Los Alamos uh, treatment, uh, Los Alamos Laboratories down in New Mexico. And so then he developed into becoming a, a science-based nutrient system analysis person who's helped thousands of patients challenged by behavioral disorders, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, ADHD, autism, Alzheimer's disease, and I think one of the things that Bill and I were talking about just before Yes, those terrible conditions, bipolar and schizophrenia, are at one pole, and plain old personality disorders. I mean, people speak disparagingly about borderline personality, our axis two. We've heard it before. And what Dr. Walsh is going to do for us today is take us into this whole different land that makes many of these conditions considerably more treatable if we just look at the biomedical data. So Bill, let's start with copper because it's kind of a, a somewhat easier way to get into it. Let's talk about why would we be interested in copper anyway? What was, the, what was your thought about why we should really talk to our listeners about copper? Uh, the, the reason I originally got interested in copper was a very simple one. As I started seeing patients, hundreds and then later thousands of them, I found that, that a very high percentage of them had abnormal serum copper levels. And uh, that had to mean something. And so in studying and diving into the literature, what I found is that copper has one remarkable impact on brain function. It is, um, and the two, the two neurotransmitters involved are dopamine, which is sort of a feel-good neurotransmitter that is needed for, for uh, a lot of things, including cognitive function. If a person's got ADHD and they give you Ritalin or Adderall, the, the idea is to increase dopamine activity. Mm -hmm. So, And the other one is norepinephrine. Well, your norepinephrine comes from dopamine. The synthesis of norepinephrine involves dopamine reacting with B6 with an enzyme and with copper, divalent plus two copper, copper plus plus. And it turns out that from animal experiments, they find that if, if you reduce the blood level of copper in an animal by, by 75%, get it down to one-fourth of, of what it should be, the ratio between those two neurotransmitters is enormously different. 
a factor of three or a factor of four. And that's been confirmed by, by a separate study. So what that means is that copper has, if, if copper is not regulated like it should be, and most of us have a, a really, very nice, beautiful system for normalizing copper in our, in our body because it's so necessary for mental function. Some people don't have that capability. And for them, a copper overload can, can occur. And, there's, and for them, they, they don't have the ability to bring it back down. So what does a copper overload mean? Because that's, that's the clinical problem we see over and over is elevated copper. Uh, what that means is extraordinarily high levels of norepinephrine and adrenaline. And that means anxiety and in severe cases, even a, a psychosis. Uh, most, the, the most common form of schizophrenia involves really high norepinephrine levels. And because of the adrenaline being really high, they tend to be more hyperactive. They, they have sleep problems generally. But the co nasty combination of low dopamine and high, and high norepinephrine is really a, a nasty combination. And in, in this case, we're dealing with, the, with gigantic changes in the amounts of those neurotransmitters. And these people suffer greatly. Uh, they they uh, usually, uh, anxiety is the, biggest, is the biggest issue, but they also are prone to depression. One nasty part of it is if these people happen to be given an SSRI antidepressant, like Paxil or, or, or Zoloft, these are the people who get worse. Because uh, these are people who, who um, are generally quite intolerant to an SSRI compared to those who do really well on them. Well, let's talk so a minute about that, Bill, because I think that's an important point. Uh, let, let's go back for just a second because it's been my experience and, and some of the folks in the audience may have lost you because you're, you're deeply into it. But one of the ways that I think it's helpful for patients to understand uh, the whole copper input and what goes on with decreased dopamine and increased norepinephrine is the acronym NERVES. Norepinephrine, NERVES. With increased yes. norepinephrine, the person's going to have a nervous condition and they're going to feel like the nerves go all the way down to the marrow in their bones and as you said just a moment ago people just we've seen this so often before I met you and uh, we would give uh, medications that would look like they were clinically indicated from the surface appearance the person seems like they're anxious so and what's the APA recommendation for anxiety it's uh, you know a serotonin product and yet, if a person's actually having a problem with a copper overload, they're already way far down the tubes with norepinephrine, and it, they're incurable. They just will not respond properly, and, for, and frequently, as you said just a moment ago, they get worse. They do. Now, uh, they do a little bit better on benzodiazepines, which can lower norepinephrine activity by... by uh, Increasing the ability of GABA to, to sort of quench the excess norepinephrine, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's it's a problem. And uh, what we have found with we have had more than 500 cases of postpartum depression, and and females who have extraordinarily high copper levels, they are the easiest patients for us to, to to correct to help. All we have to do is is get the excess copper out, and most of them become completely okay and throw the medications away. And uh, most psychiatrists don't know that. I've, I've presented this material twice at the APA, the annual American Psychiatric Association meeting, and um, nobody seems to be paying a whole lot of attention to it. But we now, with our training programs, we've now trained about 400 doctors in these techniques. And I think our most enthusiastic doctors are the psychiatrists. And uh, they're finding it, it really helpful to help to you know to work with these postpartum depression or these I call them high copper, um, extraordinarily anxious. Mostly, most of them are females, by the way. Ninety-five percent of them are females because it has to do with copper and, and estrogen are so closely related. They rise and fall together. Now, what's what's unique is that uh, most of us, I think you and I and most of the people we know, don't have a copper problem because uh, our, we have two proteins that, are, that manage this and regulate copper. They're called metallothionine and ceruloplasmin. And, and, and it works absolutely beautiful for most people. But some people don't have that capability. And for them, if copper elevates for whatever reason, they can't bring it down. And that means anxiety, depression, all the problems we talked about. 
Well, you know, one of the things that uh, was so interesting for me, and I was so appreciative of meeting you and, and hearing your presentation a couple of years ago up there in, in Naperville, was the whole situation of estrogen dominance and its relationship to this whole situation of copper. Because I was asking about estrogen dominance for a long period of time. I don't think that even estrogen dominance is on the ordinary screen of the ordinary psyche because it's sort of like okay that's an OBGYN person and I really shouldn't be asking about it but once you understand estrogen dominance and the pervasive and the postpartum depression and the seriousness almost psychotic PMS and you start looking at what actually goes on with the brain with estrogen then it's natural to follow and look at copper because they rise and fall together and they're both regulated separately. And um, yeah, it's, um, for example, the people who have the onset of anxiety from a copper problem, it's almost always at, an, at, at a, a hormonal event involving estrogen, when estrogen skyrockets. Now this happens during puberty, can happen really big time during a pregnancy, and then of course at menopause, when the estrogen changes are dramatic. And that's when people with this copper dysregulation really run into trouble. It's, it's really pretty amazing to me to see what's happened because once we go after the copper, once we measure it, and we'll have some uh, ways on the show notes to really understand this uh, copper uh, serialoplasm connection and the percentage of free copper, which I'm going to ask you about in just a second. But once a person measures that and they understand those ratios and they understand that whole percentage of free copper uh, perspective, the world changes. I mean, those folks are much more treatable. Let's take a moment to talk about free copper and and the relationship between copper and serialoplasm, if you don't mind. Well, the reason why free copper is important, first of all, most of your copper in your body is bound to this protein called serialoplasmin. And while it's there, it's safe and it's not going to cause any particular problems. It's, it's, uh, serialoplasmin is basically a chaperone. It carries the, this copper, which is a really important, valuable nutrient to, to every cell in the body, uh, so it can do all the good things it can do. However, between, I'd say, between 5 and 15% of your copper is not bound to serialoplasmin, and so it's either what we call loosely bound or actually free radical copper, which means copper plus plus, copper, divalent copper, free, and divalent copper is can be just as nasty as mercury or lead or whatever. It's, it's, it's like a toxic if you have too much of it. And uh, so we all, we, and by measuring the serum copper and serum serulooplasmin, we can, we can just simply mathematically find out what the amount of free copper is. And if you have a hot, too much free copper, you're going to have inflammation. And copper, divalent copper, the free copper, that's what converts dopamine to norepinephrine. That's why it's, it's so important, the free copper itself, because it's a measure of, uh, if, if it's elevated, it's a measure of that, that imbalance between those two really important neurotransmitters. So it's, it's a really good way to guide us uh, clinically. So you could just jump on that copper measurement and begin to consider alternative methods for, for um, approaching the estrogen dominance. It doesn't mean necessarily that they actually have to have a hormonal uh, approach. No because the hormone will take care of itself if the copper's taken care of. If a person has elevated copper, uh, estrogen makes them dramatically worse. And surprisingly, even, even progesterone, progesterone creams that are wonderful for a lot of people, they will also tend to make your copper the patient worse if they're a high copper person. So what we think is essential with every patient we see to evaluate their, their metal metabolism with respect to copper. And, and, and um, if, if it's elevated, you have to deal with it. And if it's not elevated, we, we can forget that part and get on to the other chemistries. So then, uh, a lot of people ask me, Dr. Walsh, where, did, where does this copper come from? I mean, I can't tell you how. That, that's like, and I'm sure you've been asked that question a thousand times. But let's take a little moment because I know some of our listeners are thinking about that very question. Where does the copper come from? Copper comes from our diet. Uh, primarily. A little bit might come from uh, exposure to copper-containing chemicals, but mostly it comes from your diet. Copper is a very valuable, important nutrient. You need it for growth, 
And, and during a pregnancy, for example, a woman's copper level more than doubles. And that's because the fetus that's growing within her for nine months needs it for in, enhancing growth. So copper is, is something really good that you need. It's just that too much can cause uh, a really serious mental problem. And uh, we, we, that's why we have these two proteins that, that regulate copper. In fact, if that's working well, and I suspect that's working well for you, uh, you could be chewing on copper bars every day and your copper would still be normal because your body's supposed to take care of it. But some people have these have mutations or these SNPs related to the metallothionine or the ceruloplasmin. And, and so uh, their, their proteins may be weakened and not be able to do the job for us. And, and for them, their copper tends to be dysregulated. Very, very interesting. So then what happens with this uh, worry that some have that maybe the copper pipes are contaminating my, my whole system? Well, for those people, people who do tend toward high copper, which we find out in the blood test, we recommend they drink bottled water. We recommend that they uh, try to stay away from swimming pools that are, that are treated with copper sulfate, which is what which is used to get rid of the algae. We recommend that they uh, maybe avoid shellfish because shellfish are just loaded with enormous amounts of copper. And um, even, even you know, nice things like chocolate are quite high in copper. So people that have this problem realize they get into trouble if they get too much copper in them. And, and they have to help, help out by um, minimizing the, the amount that you get in them. Well then, Bill, t- tiptoeing over on the uh, somewhat more functional medicine side, because some of our listeners are, are kind of over in that camp, how does this all work with uh, hair analysis? What's your experience? I know you're very experienced using hair analysis, but what happens, in, from my experience, it sometimes is paradoxical, because the hair analysis would say the person's low in copper, and they need copper uh, supplementation, and yet they're actually having a problem with an increase of uh, free copper. How does all that take place? Well, I find that usually hair copper and serum copper correlate pretty well, but there are exceptions like you just mentioned. And another thing that hair does not do, it, it gives you no indication of free copper. So you can have a person who has normal or below normal copper, and they can be in trouble if they have a really high percentage of copper. For example, autistic children. I did a study of 708 autistic kids, and their copper level was below normal, but their free copper average, the median, was 42%, and healthy is between maybe 5 and 15. So uh, that's an example of people who had a really serious copper problem, even though the hair analysis was okay. Very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, so the the percentage that we use so often, if you could tell me a little bit about this and educate me on that number of the percentage that you were just talking about, because what we've been using is that 25% marker and as a, uh, as a, uh, a marker for free copper. What's, what's your thought about that? I think that if a person, the normal uh, used to be considered 8 to 10, by the way. If you read any textbook that's more than 10 years old, they'll talk about 8 to 10 as being the what, what, what you would expect in, in a normal person. Uh, what I believe now is that up until 15 is not necessarily a problem. Between 15 and 25, I think, is borderline high. And, and if a person has symptoms related to copper, I would treat it. Uh, but if it's 25 or higher, 25% or higher free copper, um, then, then I think it's essential that it gets treated. Very interesting. So then the next question is, how do... You know, one of the things we were talking about offline before we started talking, and we see this happen so often, is the uh, presentation that many individuals have of more than one uh, aberrant finding. So they could have an under or over methylation, they can have copper, and they can have cryptopyrrole. So the issue then becomes, how does one actually wrap their arms around this entire uh, group of uh, challenges because it, it, it gets pretty doggone troubling. Well, it can be somewhat complicated, but um, the first thing you do is you test for all of these major imbalances. There's about seven altogether that I think are our most important, one of which is copper, another which is pyrroles, another which is zinc, etc. And you find out what a person's individuality is. Find out, and, and uh, yeah, it's nice if they only have one imbalance, 
but they might have two or three and it's important to, to deal with all of them. Um, yeah, and for example, people with high copper, uh, they tend to be zinc deficient. And the reason is that, uh, first of all, the copper is regulated in the GI tract. What happens is if the you get a, the body gets a signal if the if the amount of copper is too high in the GI tract and in the membranes and, and also uh, in the blood vessels there. And what happens then is that there's a signal that um, causes metallophining, which is the primary regulator of copper. It's genetically expressed. It increases the genetic expression. So the body then just naturally compensates by dumping more metallophining into the GI tract, binds to the copper, and doesn't let it go into the bloodstream. And that's how regulation occurs. It's a beautiful process. Metallophining primarily is stimulated by zinc. So a lot of people who have high copper simply have a zinc deficiency problem. And because of that, they don't create enough of the regulating protein for, for copper. Okay, that's why I they ask you to repeat that. Sorry to interrupt you, Bill, but you broke up a little bit there. So the metallothionine uh, is managed by zinc. I couldn't quite hear what you said on that. Yeah, the metallothionine is the is the primary regulator of copper levels in the body. It all happens automatically for most people. And however, the metallothionine is stimulated to genetically express by zinc. So uh, what normally happens is that people who have too much copper are low in zinc. They might either be low normal or deficient in zinc. And very often, by just simply normalizing zinc we can normalize copper. And that's because the zinc has this effect of, 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 of giving you a lot more of this protein, metallothionine, to uh, normalize your copper. Thank you. You know, there's one other thing I want to make sure that we cover for our listeners that's so relevant. I mean, we're talking about women and we're talking about estrogen, but I think another uh, big one that we really want to uh, cover um, emphatically is attention deficit disorder. Because what yes. happens is if copper is so relevant in attention deficit disorder because of the dopamine norepinephrine activity. You want to say some more about attention deficit disorder from your experience? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, this is the second highest group uh, with respect to copper problems. Uh, I have seen more than 5,600 cases of ADHD, and most of them have a behavior problem, usually out of control behavior very often. And 68%, more than two-thirds of all ADHD children and adults have elevated copper and get better if you fix it. So it's, it's really important for ADHD and behavior disorders. Two-thirds is a very big number. That's 68%. That, that isn't like, that isn't 5%. That's no, it's most people with ADHD. You can take most people with a behavior problem or ADHD and just simply give them enough zinc to normalize their blood level and normalize their copper level, and a lot of them are going to get a lot better. You know, we've seen it happen so often because we see so many people who, who have been treated for attention deficit disorder and are treatment failures. I mean, is, if, you, if the copper problem exists and it's not adequately addressed, that person will be a treatment failure as long as they're in treatment. It just is, it's, as, it's black and white, I hate to say it, but that's the way it is. And, and I think especially the way to look at it is too much copper means dopamine levels are dramatically lower. Well, what, 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 a drug, what do you do if you want to give a drug for ADHD? You want to increase their dopamine by giving them Ritalin, Adderall, Vyvanse, something like that. So it makes perfect sense. We, we, can, we can achieve the same result without using a drug. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. Uh, you know, we've we you know we do it a, a little bit differently because we do mix the two together. But one thing I found in using uh, stimulants is that the stimulant dosage goes down with somebody who's come in and they've been hammered with large doses of stimulants. And by the way, I've hammered them myself without knowing what I was doing. And then we come down and we see that the the copper part of it is taken care of the whole need for stimulants comes down just dramatically because there are some neurotransmitters that the stimulants can work on. 
what we do uh, with the treatment with an ADHD kid or a behavior disorder child or adult, we we uh, most of them are on on a medication, a stimulant, and many of them are helped quite a bit by it. So what we do for the first two or three months is we keep them on 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 medication, and do both treatments together. And then after three or four months, once we've got the copper and zinc regulated, then the question is, well, what's the optimum dose of Ritalin or, or Adderall? And we're not, a, we're not opposed to these medications. We just, the question is, what's now? We've got a new reality. We've corrected part of the problem. And what is, what is the proper dose? So our experience is that well, what we have them do is gradually, little by little, slowly um, try, try lower and lower doses of the medication. If they're on 40 milligrams, we might have them get down to 30 and then 20 and then just keep going. And what we find is right around 80% of the families say they're at their best with zero. And 20% say they lose some benefit if they go all the way to zero. And we say, so be it, because we're not opposed to the medications. We just want to know where the child will be at their best. And be by and so even in, in the cases where they still need some Ritalin or Adderall or whatever, uh, they're still benefiting because the doses are so much lower that any side effects tend to disappear. So true. That is so true. Well, let us uh, quickly pass over with the remaining time to hit this other exceedingly important topic of cryptopyrrol. And so many of us, myself included, when I first read your book, was, you know, I had the reaction, you know, what is what is cryptopyrrol? What what difference does that make? It sounds so completely odd and foreign. It sounds almost Martian, cryptopyrrol. So could you tell us a little bit, uh, for those who haven't had the experience of understanding cryptopyrrol, where it comes from, what its implications are for clinical conditions? Okay, there are a family of pyrroles in the human body, and everybody has some pyrroles. The problem is that pyrroles don't do anything valuable for the body. It's a byproduct of important biochemical reactions, mainly in your liver and your spleen. For example, uh, some of the processes for, for um, making hemoglobin, um, the net result is that one of the byproducts are some pyrroles. Now there's a family of pyrroles. There's cryptopyrrol, hemopyrrol, and several other pyrroles. And the, the good thing is, when one tends to be high, they all tend to be high. So they sort of go up and down together. They originally developed a, a, pre, a test for cryptopyrroles. It turns out that 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 is not the most important pyrrole with respect to behavior and brain function. The hemopyrrole is more important, and it's got a long, difficult to say name. But uh, but the test, um, whether it's hemopyrrole or cryptopyrrole, are, are equally valid. It's a urine test, and what you're looking for are people who have more than the normal healthy amount of pyrroles. We all have to have some pyrroles. Now, pyrroles tend to... Um, tend to leave the body quickly. The body gets rid of them rather quickly. It gets into your bloodstream, goes through the kidneys and out in your urine. And, and, and so we all, we have a constant flow of, of these pyrroles that are really, you know, relatively unnecessary and almost unwanted. And we, we get rid of the, these pyrroles rather quickly if you're healthy. Some people don't have that ability. And the problem with pyrroles is that whether it's cryptopyrrole or hemopyrrole or whatever, the pro the, the, there are two problems. One is that they still have some reactivity. They can grab onto certain, they tend to, to bind to some nutrients. They, they have a tremendous affinity, affinity for B6. And anything that's chemically an aldehyde, uh, the pyrroles will just latch onto and keep. Well, unfortunately, the number one aldehyde in the bloodstream is vitamin B6. That, that your body is, you know, going to quite a bit of work to get into your bloodstream because you need it for so many things. And so people with pyrrole disorder tend to have extraordinary deficiency of B6. And because they have this genetic disorder, the pyrrole is almost always inborn, uh, they, they may need many times the RDA of B6 just to normalize their, their blood and their brain levels. A second issue is that if you have pyrrole disorder, Pyrroles on the way out as they're exiting the body also tend to grab onto zinc. And so you wind up usually with your pyrrole disorder, you tend to have a double deficiency of B6 and zinc. And that means big time trouble for your neurotransmitters. Zinc, for example, is necessary for proper functioning of the 
of the very important NMDA neurotransmitter that is now getting more and more research. It's also necessary to uh, help GABA the activity normalized. And if you don't have enough GABA activity, you're going to tend to have a number of problems, including anxiety. Uh, and, and then B6 itself. B6 is the number one primary cofactor that is a, nece a necessary substance in the synthesis of serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. So if you're really, really horribly low in, in B6, like like people with pyrrole disorder are, you tend to have much, much too little of all of those. So it's a, it's a recipe for a problem. And it's my favorite imbalance because it's the easiest one to correct. It's also the easiest one to diagnose because the symptoms and traits are so strikingly unique that I, I'm sure you know by now as you've been doing this, <laughs> uh, after you've talked to a patient for about 20 minutes and learn a lot about them, you can predict their pyrrole level. You can predict the lab result. So it's, it's really, an I, I, as I said, it's my favorite imbalance because these people can suffer terribly and they can get relief really quickly if that's the problem. Well, it is so much fun. I mean, I appreciated that, you know, when we were in training up there with you up in near Chicago, and I remember very well a case and, and everybody was batting around what it was and your eyes lit up. <laughs> you said, this, this, is, this is the one, this is, this is it sitting right here. And I thought I one, of, one of your questions was, uh, you know, the tags in the back of the shirt. I thought that was, I've gotten so much mileage out of too loud, too bright, too tight, too warm, too hot, too cold. It's just, it's amazing. Yeah, they wake up in the morning and they hate mornings and they usually are not hungry. Many of them skip breakfast and they thrive at night. They're night people. They, they, they are bothered by bright lights, loud noises. Uh, they tend to have wild mood swings up and down. They, they can be wonderful people with, you know, they're normally calm and can get terribly uh, upset if something goes wrong. They're, they're, it's a stress disorder. They're just um, victimized by stresses. And once it's corrected, those problems just sort of fade away. Well, let's take a moment. That stress is a very important one because we've interviewed some really interesting folks who are interested in uh, brain injury and uh, PTSD. And uh, so many people are calling it PTS now. They don't like the word disorder because they see it as people do have natural reactions to stress that aren't a disorder, but then over time can be crippling. So let's talk a little bit about individuals and like veterans coming back and the relationship with individuals who've been in combat and cryptopyro. Well, I've been contacted by some uh, researchers and veterans administrations uh, because we've started to give a hard look at post-traumatic stress, whether you call it a disorder or not. I would call it a disorder. And we know that stress can do a number of, of, of nasty things to the body. For one thing, uh, recently, there have been some really clear studies showing that it, it shortens your telomeres. It shortens your telomeres. And what that means is that is that it tends to make you older. And it, makes, it tends to make your cells deteriorate quicker. And, it, and it's related to a lot of disorders. Um, Post-traumatic stress, I personally believe that in most cases, it's not something that comes on gradually. It's a sudden event, which is why so many veterans with extraordinary trauma uh, and, and some kind of a, a military situation are prone to it. And once it hits, it doesn't go away. It usually, usually post-traumatic stress is something that is a problem the rest of their lives. And I'm quite convinced that it's what we call epigenetic, that there are some people who are vulnerable to stresses, that if they get a severe insult, it can change the expression of maybe 50 or 60 or 100 genes, and and so they it's a very complex disorder. They might have it might affect many different systems. It might affect their brain function. It might affect their GI tract. It might affect you know almost any part of the body because so many genes are dysregulated. So that's one of the really complex, difficult to treat um, issues and disorders. And mainly, it does not tend to go away completely. And however, it's treatable for many people, and some people can recover. But it's, it's still tough because the tendency will always remain. Well, how does that relate then? How does that stress then throw a person over into an aberrant cryptopyrrole situation? 
Well, I think a high percentage of post-traumatic stress people have elevated pyrroles. I think that's one of the reasons why they've been weakened and vulnerable to it. Oh, I, people, I, I think it's, it's a, I think it's a uh, factor that tends to promote its occurrence. Yeah. So you're thinking of it as a, as a pre-existing condition, not necessarily a result of. Uh, exactly. I think it's a vulnerability for post-traumatic disorder. Very interesting. And, 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 not, uh, and not what happens afterwards. Although afterwards, uh, these people who have that disorder, as you know, are extraordinarily stressed and high and wired and strong and they're prone to depression. And, and, that, and we know that stress increases pyro levels. So it, it, it works that way too. It, so a person with a pyro disorder who develops post-traumatic stress, it'll be worse after they develop it because post-traumatic stress then impacts the pyrroles and makes it even worse. So let's talk for a moment about treatment with uh, cryptopyrrole and let's talk about the whole uh, intervention with B6 and uh, tell our listeners a little bit about the differences, it's a question that came up early on when, when uh, I was in training with you. You know, you have the regular B6 and then there's P5P. And if you could break down those two uh, intervention strategies, how they're related, I'd appreciate it. Okay, well, most people are familiar with what we call B6. And it's, it's pure doxine hydrochloride, and that's what you get in most, in most health food stores and in Walgreens and places like that. However, once once B6 gets into your body, whether from from that from that or or from your food, uh, the body converts it to pyridoxal 5-phosphate, P5P, uh, which is easier to say, and and that's activated B6, and it's the P5P that does all of these good things for you. So your regular B6 has to be converted. Uh, interestingly, some people are not able to convert the your regular B6 efficiently to the P5P. And so we've learned plentifully that in order to make sure that everybody gets enough B6 in their bloodstream and in their brain, we tend to give them both. We like to give about 50% of it as, as, as normal B6 and 50% as P5P for that reason. So another thing that you have always liked, and I'd like you to address a little bit, thank you on that one, is the speed with which cryptopyrrole can turn around. Because one of the things you've done a really good job of talk about the optimistic prognosis on both the copper and the cryptopyro. Could you talk a little bit about that, Bill? Well, first of all, the prognosis is terrifically promising. If they have an ADHD, a behavior disorder, if they have depression, or if they have anxiety, it's not quite as good if they happen to have an epigenetic disorder that I believe includes bipolar and schizophrenia and autism. These, these I think, are are, are, are a separate category, but it, I've seen more than 10,000 cases of, of behavior disorders, and again, more than 5,000 cases of ADHD. If they have a pyrrole disorder, they often get better dramatically quickly. If I've had so many young, extraordinarily violent young males who might have been assaulting people as many as five or 10 times a day every day, there are thousands of such kids in the USA. And um, the families report, many of them report to me that it only takes a matter of four, five, six days, and, or at least within two weeks, there is a huge change in it. Nobody can believe this say, well, what's happening? And I think it has to do with B6 more than zinc, because the zinc takes 60 days to normalize when you treat it. But B6 is something that can rapidly resolve. And, and those are the people who really get better quickly. They you almost say rapidly, Bill. You mean like a couple of weeks? Could you say what what you mean when you say rapidly? Rapidly for me is when a when a family calls me with a very violent child who's been violent his entire life, and they say, "Hey, we've been doing this, and on day four he was different, and by the time two weeks were up, he was completely different." That's that's right, and it happens a lot. A lot depends on the severity of it. If, if a person has uh, mild pyrroles, they correct really quickly. If it's extraordinarily severe, like we've tested in very violent people like Charles Manson, we've tested, in, we've t I've tested a lot of people in prisons. Uh, it, it usually takes a full month or two to get them normalized because the imbalance is so severe. Did you test Charles Manson? Yes, we uh, interviewed and tested him. Oh my gosh. One of the, str one of the strangest days 
that Dr. Joel Norris, my colleague, ever had. He was the one that primarily met with him, and uh, we got and he gave us some samples. Uh, he agreed to give us samples for me to analyze. He had the most um, extreme sociopathic pattern we've ever seen. For, you know, people with antisocial personality disorder, the people who tend to be criminals, they have no empathy for people, and we all know what they're like. Uh, he had the most severe version of it we've ever seen. He had, the, at that time, we had already seen, I think, seven or 8,000 people. He had the lowest copper level we ever saw in a human being when we tested him. Mm. He's still in the top 10. He's still in the top 10. I'm convinced that Charles Manson, if he was adopted into another family, that the same thing would have happened. His chemistry was so abnormal. So was his, was his cryptopyrol elevated? Yeah. That's interesting. Yes. That is that is yeah, because what one of the things I think is so useful for your work, Bill, is is this personality disorder concept because we know so many of these folks are not suffering really from bipolar illness. They're not schizophrenic, and they just look like really bad kids, and they're just what are you going to do with them? Yeah, no, I would say twenty or twenty-five percent of them may have pyrrole disorder. There's a major problem. That's it's it's not half of them, but it's a lot of people. And it's wonderful when they get better quickly, and usually permanently. As long as they continue normalizing their zinc and, and B6 levels, they're, they're usually fine. Well, let's talk about that continuing thing a little bit, because, yes, everybody uh, wants to get fixed, but sometimes they require a little more time. And if, if you could address the not just the acuity of the treatment situation, but what your experience is clinically with a longer-term uh, how one addresses these things over time. Right, that's one of our greatest problems. Uh, it's relatively easy to diagnose the chemistry, especially if you do the right lab tests. They have a really good medical history and learn everything you can about a patient. So diagnosis is of, of what neurotransmitters are misbehaving is relatively easy. We're also quite good at developing a treatment program of, of nutrients that can normalize this over time. The biggest problem is compliance. Uh, we've, we've had so many people get nicely better and tell us they recovered and find out three or four years later that they're in trouble again because they stopped. Um, so it's, it's a, uh, something that, that's, that we've been studying and we've learned that under-methylated people are the ones that mostly have this problem. For example, the people we talked about with high copper and high norepinephrine, they almost never relapse. They, for some reason, within them, they just take this, what they need to take, which are usually capsules to swallow, a few capsules to swallow down, and they just don't ever stop. The undermethylated people, they tend to be uh, a little, um, they want to be in control of everything. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. And yes. for whatever reason, for whatever reason, uh, just statistically, they're more prone to compliance. But if they stop, they'll they'll be okay for a while but but they the uh the problems will come back and usually within a month or two with their back big time they just think too much bill <laughs> well maybe it's not it's not a bad thing if this happens and they clearly see that they really need to do it yes and then if they see all this bad stuff happening then that might motivate them to to do it but it, it's uh, but compliance and law is a problem see we can't cure these these balances but we can effectively treat them we can't we can't cure them straighten out the chemistry and then and then stop the treatment which is which is unfortunate but that's the reality so fortunately that's an, that's an important point bill if you could just yeah go ahead i'm sorry i interrupted i was going to say that fortunately the treatments are our nutrients and if we normalize our chemistry there should be no side effects whatever because we're just normalizing their chemistry. Um, and it's not very expensive usually. If people have trouble swallowing capsules and pills, what we you can you can go to a compounding pharmacy and they can usually jam all these things into just a couple of capsules in the morning and evening. So I, I think it's it's What's necessary for to pyro bill in terms of uh, longevity with them. Are they uh, as uh, do they stay with the copper group in terms of sticking with the program? They do, but the the pyrrole people have a have a unique problem, and that is that they not only do they get better faster, but if they stop even for a few days, a lot of this can come back. 
And so if they have the flu or some kind of a problem or for some reason they, they lose their, their supply of nutrients, uh, they can get in, in serious trouble within a week. Whereas normally the other imbalances, like it takes copper 60 days to correct a high copper person. So if they, if they stop for a week or two, not much will happen. It's a matter of time. I'm sorry, you, what did you just say? It's a, it's a matter of timing for yes. depending on which imbalance. Well, it's that whole thing of a therapeutic alliance, Bill. And you have, I mean, a, a guy like you, because you're such a delightful, um, uh, easy person to talk to, even even with people like yourself, it's, it, people don't form the therapeutic alliance. And he's like, what, what's wrong with this person? Because they just have a problem with authority or whatever it happens to be, and they don't hang in there with a the program. Worst case I ever had was a woman from, from, um, from Minnesota. And she was the about uh, 25, 26 years old, and she was the, the most capable person in the family. Was running a family business, and and she had her father was killed in a plane crash, mm. and under the stress, she became a, a, a full-on schizophrenic, what we call a pyroluric schizophrenic. She had a severe pyrol disorder that, under the stress, caused her to be a schizophrenic, and she was in terrible shape. Well, we, we managed to get her to our clinic, and, we, and she got really better within two or three months. And the strange thing is, two years later, I got a call from her brother, and he said, she's gone off. She said, we've lost her again. And what she had done is she had stopped. Mm -hmm. So back, we tested her, and again, she got better again. She now has stopped at least twice that I know of and become schizophrenic again. You would think, why would anybody take a chance at that? But that's, that's an extreme example. People, you know, human beings are human beings and um, nobody likes to be controlled by any kind of a treatment. And they're always wondering, do I really need this? I've had, I had a case of a young man who, uh, who was um, violent, flunking out of school, truant in high school, and he was primarily pyroluric. We got it corrected. And he, was, he became a good student and went to college, which amazed everybody. And while at the University of Colorado, after in his second year, he looked at that bag of vitamins that he was supposed to take, a few of them every day, and he, and he, and he, he stopped taking them for a couple of days, didn't feel any different. He threw them all away. Mm -hmm. Last time I heard, he was, uh, he was a person living in a park someplace, and uh, life was awful. And, and the family felt terrible because they couldn't persuade him that he needed to do it. So we had, those are extreme examples, but uh, compliance is our biggest problem. Well, I so appreciate you sharing those examples because it does take uh, a little bit of, uh, if you will, fear of reality to understand that these uh, uh, imbalances take time and really some ongoing care as opposed to, hey, we're just going to pop this together and make it happen and go on down the road. Quite a few people are in denial and they don't like to believe that there was some kind of a flaw, even maybe a genetic flaw that gave them this problem. And, you know, we call it the river in Egypt, denial. Yes. Um, and, and there's a lot of that. And, and, and compliance may be difficult for them. They don't really want to believe they have to do this. Well, I have one final question, and then we're going to... I think this was a great discussion right here as a segue to our next meeting, Bill, because we're talking about bipolar and schizophrenia. We're talking about two really serious conditions. And I really look forward to our next meeting where we can talk about these even more completely and more more thoroughly. One question I'd like to uh, pull together as we close, and that is, uh, I've seen so much um, uh, written, I've seen videos on this. I wonder what your thought is about the whole business of um, secondary or primary infections, candida, um, gluten sensitivity, casein sensitivity, and the relationship between those imbalances and our infections and cryptopyro? Well, any stress of any kind, whether it's chemical, whether it's emotional, it could be an accident, it can be physical, all stresses tend to elevate pyrroles and make the problem worse. So uh, we, we've learned that. Uh, we had one woman who had been uh, in trouble most of her adult life, and I remember her. She was a 38-year-old woman, and she came back on, on a, on a, after a year for a follow-up, and she told me that she told me that um, her mother-in-law was coming to visit, and so she she started taking stress doses of B6 and zinc because she had this pyrrole problem, and she that would help her get through the stressful visit from her mother-in-law. So <laughs> and it worked. 
and it works for her. She said it worked for her. She says she did it all the time. It worked like a charm. It sounds great. Better than better than Ativan, you know. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of this is uh, a lot of this is is written up in in the, in the book Nutrient Power that we did, and on our website. And of course, I think in your website you have a lot of this information too. Well, I've actually taken a lot of your information and put it up on my website. I mean, one of the things we're going to do for our audience is again offer a drawing for your book and it's nutrient power heal your biochemistry and heal your brain and we're going to have a drawing for that we're going to have a drawing for every single one of these episodes because we want our audience to be familiar with your work i mean it's it's so thorough and when you go into the book it's really heartening because he's so clearly written i mean uh dr walsh really puts together a, a package that's understandable and usable and it's more it's for the public but it's also for practitioners who want to make some changes in their in their professional lives. So. What we find is you, you, can, you can get the book on Amazon or you can get it on Barnes & Noble, but if you get it through our website, the, the Walsh Research Institute website, 100% of the proceeds go to our charity and, and help support the work we're doing. So, to the, uh, and, the Walsh uh, Research Institute. And now that we have, uh, it, it was twice as expensive until we had a, a paperback come out, so now it's something like 15 bucks to get a book. That's great. Thank you for, for mentioning that. Anything else you would like to say, Bill, as we wind down here? Any thoughts in closing that you think sort of, hey, guys, this is something we need to pay attention to? No, I just think that people should become students. They need, uh, I think a person, everyone, even if they feel pretty, pretty good, it would be good for them to understand what their individual body chemistry is because it has so much to do with their personality, any problems they may have, possibly even future health problems. I think it'd be, I, for example, I now know that almost all older people tend to become very zinc deficient. I think this tends to cause them more illnesses and shorten their life. Um, I, I think that I just urge people to you know, study themselves and find out what they can. And you can do that by going to a doctor like a Dr. Charles Parker, mm -hmm. and, and within, within a month you can tell them what their unique individuality is. And you might even be able to tell them you know, what kind of diet would be best for them. It, it's amazing. It's truly amazing, Bill. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Biochemistry really does make a difference. And if you're a treatment failure on any level, you just have to dig deeper. There are options that we just haven't had before. And I want to thank you for sharing this with our listeners today, Bill. We look forward oh. to our next meeting, Bill. Yeah, we'll see you then. Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.